Our reading this morning is from Galatians 3, verses 19 to 22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to, those to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Father, I ask you that you would meet us today in a new and fresh way, that you'd pour out your spirit upon us, that you would uh, stir among us the faith, Lord, to live for you in every area of our lives. But God, we ask you that we would see you for who you are today that you'd be glorified in our midst, and through this text, Lord, that we might see you and the beauty and the wonder of your salvation in our lives. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Good morning. My name is Brett. It is my joy to add my welcome to Jake's welcome, and we will be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 22, and we will try and answer a big question. The big question is this, right out of verse 19, why then the law? So we will attempt, and hopefully by the end of our time together, have at least compiled a bit of an answer to the question, why then the law? Uh, The passage you heard read has two questions in it, why then the law? And the second question, really restating the first in a bit of a different way, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And so if you were here last Sunday, and I'll, I'll do a little bit of a recap, but if you were here last Sunday... And last Sunday may have been a little bit more inspiration than information. Uh, Today we're going to flip that. This is going to be a little more teaching, a little more information than inspiration. I'm not going to promise that I won't get excited at some point in the midst of this. But it is a very exciting text. But there's a lot of ground to cover in the sense of understanding the way that Paul is suggesting to the people here, the way that they would relate to the law, the way that he's writing to them in, in the churches of Galatia. So let me set some context to try and answer these two questions. Why then the law? Why then the law? And is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So here's some context for us to bring us into this, uh, now our 14th week in the study of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Uh, Last week, we saw that our inheritance, our very salvation itself, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, the very salvation that you claim, that you take hold of, that you ground your hope in, that that does not come from keeping Old Testament law. But rather, our salvation, the promised inheritance that we receive in Christ, the fact that that God has made a way for us to be in relationship to him, be united with him, that he is ours, we are his. Okay, All of that, the whole thing, all of that is based upon faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Christ has accomplished something on our behalf. He is faithful and we trust him. But trusting in what Jesus has faithfully done through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, by trusting in that, we can be assured that we can be saved. That's the Christian gospel, the Christian good news. If we put our trust in what he has accomplished for us, we can receive that promise of salvation. Now, we are on the end of a promise that was given to Abraham 4,000 years ago. Talked about that last week. God made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, he would bless the world. That God would bless the world through Abraham's son, his offspring. 
Verse 16 last week says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring. And then Paul says, who is Christ? He is the one who is the promised offspring of Abraham. He is the one. The whole point Paul's trying to make here in this letter is that the promises to Abraham that were ratified when God made a covenant with him, that these promises did not come through law-keeping, but actually came through faith. Last week we talked about how we can be sure that God's promise to Abraham can be counted upon. How we can know that we can trust God's promise. We talked about the animals that, that you know, we talked about the basic little butcher shop that Abraham opened up when he, he took the animals and he killed them and he spilled their blood and he cut them in two and he made two sides with an aisle in between and that God went down the aisle. We talked about the whole thing last week. If you weren't here last week, I'm sorry. That just sounds weird. The whole thing sounds weird if you weren't here last Sunday. That's why we have a great podcast. You can listen to it. It's really wonderful. That was a joke. <clears throat> I may be a bit high on myself, but I'm not that high. Okay. <laughs> the text is wonderful. And, and if you understand how we can count on God's promise to Abraham, you understand how beautiful the reception of that promise is on this side of the cross and how we receive it by faith. Verse 11 in chapter 3, we looked at two weeks ago. Jake took us through this. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying you can't have a right relationship with God by the law alone. Okay, our right standing before God comes by faith. Paul goes on to explain that Jesus Christ's death in our place was part of the long promise of salvation. That, that long promised salvation of all kinds of people, not just Jewish people, but all kinds of people where Jesus took upon himself the curse of disobedience upon himself. He took it upon himself, our curse of disobedience when he died on the cross. This is the, this is the story that we are grafted into. Verse 14 says, so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, those who are not of Jewish descent, so that we might receive the promised spirit, the Holy Spirit, through faith. So if we put our trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us by faith, then we can receive the promise of salvation and we can receive the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because it's the entire context of the letter that he's writing that we're dropping into. Paul's writing this letter to a group of people who are prioritizing Moses and the law over and against Abraham and the promise. And this is key for us to understand. They were emphasizing Moses and the law over and against Abraham and the promise. And what they falsely believed and what they were falsely teaching was that the law that God gave to Moses, right? The Ten Commandments, everything we see from Exodus 19, 20, right through the end of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, which is a fantastic book to read. You should read it sometime, especially if you're having trouble sleeping. And then you should read Numbers, which will also help you just hit the Z's real hard at times, but it's glorious. And so you should make sure you read it in the morning. And then Deuteronomy. So the second half of Exodus and Leviticus is then sort of understood. That's, that's the law that God gave to his people. It's really restated and reinforced in Numbers and Deuteronomy. That whole picture, the whole thing that was given hundreds of years after Abraham had received the promise from God, they believed, they falsely believed that that law 
superseded the promise that God made to Abraham. That's why last week Paul's saying, hey, you can't make it null and void. But that's what they were trying to do. What they falsely believed and what they were falsely teaching, these are the false teachers in the churches of Galatia, they were teaching that salvation was faith in Jesus plus doing works of the law. Okay, Paul's whole point was just because the law came later doesn't make the promise to Abraham void. And you go, that sounds like a lot of Jewish stuff from 4,000 years ago, and I'm not Jewish, and I live in Vancouver in 2019. Yeah, this is very important for us to understand how we know that we can relate to God. Why then the law is a very important question for us to ask, because the Old Testament is very important for us. So Paul was being very clear by saying, we're not saved by keeping the law, but we are saved by walking by faith. We place our faith, again, in the faithfulness of Jesus. So now the questions make all kinds of sense. Why then the law, and is the law then contrary to the promises of God? It makes sense when you place those questions right inside the context of a group of people who believed that the law had superseded the promise to Abraham. Yet Paul comes in, what we looked at last week, he argues for the promise to Abraham. And then he would go, well, well, then what do we need the law for? Paul, being a good pastor, knows that he is going to have some questions he can assume. Like when you tell everybody that the law is not how you're actually saved, but by faith. And so we actually anchor our hope back in the promise to Abraham, not in the law to Moses. And everybody goes, well, then why then the law? And that is a valid question. So we're going to try and answer it. Here's how we're going to try and look at it today. The addition of the law, the inability of the law, and the freedom of faith. Three points. The addition of the law, the inability of the law, and the freedom of faith. Now, the first point is way longer than the other two. So don't freak out when you think to yourself, my goodness, he is still going on the first point. Yeah, the other two are real quick. The addition of the law. You with me? Well, that's one, one of you. That's fantastic. <clears throat> the addition of the law. I'm going to preach this anyways. It doesn't matter. So Galatians 3, 19 to 20. Here's, here's where we're going. The addition of the law. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, obviously, that's simple to understand. So we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, That, too, was a joke. I think I'm leaning into the dadness of my, of my dad jokeness. Maybe you need to correct that. Jake, if you want to make a note, we'll talk about that later. You can help me. Why then the law? If we're not saved by keeping the law, then why, why would God give it? Like, there's a lot of Bible made up of law. And there's a lot of ink that's been spilled trying to understand it. What's the point? Why not just roll along with all the promises that God made to Abraham and go, let's just hope this works out. We don't need the law. Let's just move through. Like that went on for hundreds of years. Why not just kind of roll with that? Or why all the formality? Why all the formalizing of all of these commands? Okay, the first thing I want to say to you about why the law is actually not in this text, but I think it's all over this text. And I think it's something that's important for us to take hold of and grasp and hang on to as we ask ourselves the question, why then the law? See, God came and made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son, that he would be the son of the promise that he had made to him. 
So Abraham and Sarah have a son, and their son is named Isaac. Isaac then has a couple of sons. One of them is named Jacob, and because of some circumstances, he is the one who inherits the promise. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac, and we have Jacob. And then Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. We call them the 12 tribes of Israel. So Abraham gets a promise from God. God says, I'm going to make good on this. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is named Joseph. And apparently Joseph was a bit of a punk because his older brothers sold him into slavery. That's a rough go. And God says, what your brothers meant for evil, I intended for good. He gets sold into slavery, and he ends up serving in the Egyptian empire, and he ends up being elevated to a status of leadership within the Egyptian empire. In fact, he is at such a high status of leadership, and he has some dreams and revelations that help the Egyptian empire not only gain more land and more favor and more wealth and more riches and more peoples, but he helps his own family not die in the midst of a famine that God had spoken to him was about to come. So he gets a plan in place. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes. Joseph is one of the tribes. Joseph's one of the brothers who should have been a tribe of Israel, but I'm not going to get into that. Whoops. Don't open cans of worms. You can't close. That's that's another whole conversation. Joseph gets sold into slavery, saves his family from famine and destitution, and is like a prince in Egypt, serving at the right hand of Pharaoh. But then something happens. Joseph dies. His family dies. Hundreds of years go by. And the promise that God made to Abraham, carried out through Isaac and Jacob and all of the 12 tribes, the people are multiplying, the family's getting bigger. But the Pharaoh forgets about Joseph, and he forgets about these favored Israelites. And what ends up happening is, Pharaoh puts all of the Israelites in bondage and slavery. And they're in bondage and slavery for 430 years. And in the midst of 430 years, while they're multiplying and multiplying as family, and they continue to grow as a nation, they are still in bondage and slavery. You know what happens? God comes and he delivers them. Do you know why God comes and delivers them? I just want you to see this. I want you to notice this. Do you know why? Exodus chapter 2 tells us, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham that I spent all week last week trying to explain, with Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God hears their crying. He hears their moaning under the weight of slavery and sin, being sinned against, being held in bondage and captivity and slavery. He hears their cry and he comes to them. Look, there are great promises for those of us who are in Christ that we have not yet fully realized. They are eternal promises that will come. And we get little glimpses of them here and there. But if you're in trial and you're in suffering and you're in slavery and you're in bondage and you're sick and your health is falling apart and your whatever is falling apart in your life, look at this. God saw the people and God knew. Your struggles are not unknown to him. He hears you when you cry. And in an act of sheer grace, 
due to nothing they had done. Hear me, because this is Galatians. Due to nothing they had done, due to no merit of their own, to nothing that they had earned before him, due to no good works that they had accomplished, God delivers them from their slavery, from their plight in Egypt, and he brings them out into the wilderness on the road to the land that he had first promised to Abraham. And he does it for one reason. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise. And I want you to see that God's grace was revealed to that whole nation in the Exodus before the law was given. Why did he save them from all the slavery and bondage that they were in? Why? Why did he save them? Because he made a promise to Abraham. Not because they were awesome. And you're a great, wonderful group of awesome followers of Jesus. You're so wonderful, kind. You come kind of late sometimes, but that's okay. We'll, we'll work it out. He didn't save you because you're awesome. You are awesome because he saved you. C.S. Lewis said, he didn't save you because you're lovely. He made you lovely when he saved you. <laughs> he delivers his people from bondage and slavery in something we call the Exodus. Scripture calls it the Exodus before they even had the law. So in announcing the law, here's what I want to say. God announces who he is. He reveals more of his nature and character to them through the law than they would have had apart from it. In fact, in Exodus 34, 6, he announces his name to Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He wanted them to know who he was. He wants us to know who he is and what he's like. Oh, he's so good. This is our God. Now, again, I ask the question, why then the law? Why not just roll along with the promises that God gave to Abraham? Again, why all the formality? Why all the formalizing? Look at the first part of verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Now, what does that mean? So sometimes you have conversations with people and they use a word and you go, I think I know what that word means. Like I get the gist of that word, but I'm also a little bit too proud to ask what it means exactly. Or so maybe I'll just Google it really quick. Uh, but maybe you can't get your phone out. And like in this moment right now where you're like, I don't want to be that guy looking at my phone trying to figure out what transgressions means because I'm sure that's one of the words I'm supposed to know. Why don't, why don't I just tell us what it means? Because in my study this week, I was like, transgressions. I know that's different than sin. I know that I've studied this in the past, but I can't remember exactly how this works. Here's how it works. Transgression is a kind of sin in the Bible. But listen to this, because this is, this is what's important. Transgression is a violation of a known law. It's a known law. Let me explain. Uh, I'm 15 years old, 15-year-old Brett. Very excited to get his driver's license, because 15-year-old Brett lived in a village connected to nothing. And just wanted to leave. Uh, when I was 15, my uncle gave me a pickup truck. Ooh, I loved it. Silver Chevy. Regular cab, long box, two-wheel drive. Had the 305, not the 350, which meant it was the smaller of the two motors that Chevy put in it. Also had no options whatsoever. Any options, like none. Had zero options, but I loved it. Like if you went to the Chevy dealer and you said, hey, I want to buy the least expensive, cheapest, crappiest truck you sell. This is the one that they would have given you. And he would have said, thank you very much. And it was given to me, and I loved it. I loved it. I was 15. I hadn't yet been set free to drive it because you had to get your license, and you couldn't get that until you were 16. But sometimes my parents weren't home. And sometimes they would leave, and they would go away even for a weekend. And they'd take my sister to some sort of sporting event or some sort of tournament. And uh, the keys to my truck hung there. 
And when they were home, I would even just like to go sit in it and just play music and just sit in there and go, this is my truck. <laughs> One day I'm going to drive this truck. But there were rules around how I was to interact with the vehicle. Most of them were implied rather than explicit. Like you don't have a driver's license. So therefore, no one should have to tell you you can't drive. But here's what I would do. Now, youth here, don't do this. <laughs> I know you're here and you're like, hmm, I know where my parents' keys are. Don't, don't follow after this example. This is before I came to Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> I'd take that thing for a rip. Now, I grew up in a village with no police. So you could drive. You pretty much get away with whatever you wanted. I'd go drive it around. Oh, man, I love just driving around, just sitting, oh, yeah, hanging your hand over the steering wheel, looking cool, pumping music in there, because I did put a CD player in it, obviously. Okay, I'm driving the truck. I come home one day, and uh, my parents land. There's like a, there's a big grass field behind it. It was in town, but on the edge of town, there's this huge grass field that they owned. And so I thought, you know what I wanted? I want to go do some donuts. And so I, I pulled into the long grass, and I started whipping donuts in my pickup truck. And I'm just like, yeah! Like the whole, you can imagine how exciting that was. I, I grew up in a small town, guys. There was not a lot to do. And so I'm whipping around doing donuts. Now, the problem is I'm not smart enough to think, boy, I bet I left a track going into the long grass. <laughs> That would be very visible for anybody who wanted to see. So my parents come home. My dad, not being uh, an idiot like me, sees that there's a track, sees that there's like grass stuck to the undercarriage of my truck, and that there's ruts in donut shapes all around in the wrong, long grass. And he comes and he goes, oh, so uh, you doing some donuts out in the back? I'm like, hmm, that's pretty pointed. He must have seen something. <laughs> Don't deny. So I go, was I not supposed to do that? I bet that, you know what, I bet that was wrong. I bet I shouldn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Like that, that, that dad tone, like, yeah, son. Um, there was then an explicit rule that I was not to drive the truck anywhere, ever, period, until I had a license. And I went, okay. There was no real consequence from my parents for the first one, but after my dad laid out what should have been an implied rule that he then made explicit, and if I would have broke that explicit rule, that then is called a transgression. Sin is something we kind of understand we probably shouldn't have done. It wasn't like sin didn't come until the law came. It was like there was sin before that. But the law made sin explicit. It made it a transgression. It is breaking a known law. Douglas Moose said sin is worthy of punishment, but the particular form of sin known as transgression evokes a greater punishment because it involves conscious violation of a known law. So why the law? Why add the law? Okay, here's what Ben Witherington III said. If you're going to be an academic, get a handle like that. I would suggest that what Paul means is that the law turns sin, which certainly already existed before and apart from the law, into transgression. That is, the law makes quite clear what every sin, that every sin, is a sin against God. Why add the law? Here's what John Stott said. The function of the law was not to bestow salvation, however, but to convince men of their need of it. He says, look, salvation was not to be found in keeping the law. It was to convince you that you needed to be saved. So let me show you three ways that Paul said this in the letter to the Romans, because we spent lots of time in Galatians. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, 
But there is no law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see what he means? Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Where there's no law, it's not a transgression where you understand the law and then break it anyways. Where there is no law, there can be no transgression. Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, we're nine words into our text. We're doing great so far. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now the fact that the law was added means it had a definite beginning, but I want you to notice the word until in this text. It was added because of transgressions until the offering should come, or the offspring, pardon me, should come to whom the promise had been made. Now the fact that the law was added, okay, it has a definite beginning. And the until in the text tells us that it was never meant to be a permanent feature, but a temporary measure with a definite end. Last week we saw that the offspring, or the seed, if you're reading in the NIV, the seed of Abraham was Jesus. The offspring of Abraham was Jesus. So this is giving us the big answer to the question, why the law? The purpose of the law was to reveal sin until Jesus came as a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. There's a a scholar from uh, University of Manchester, New Testament scholar named Peter Oakes. He said, not only does the law arrive late, it also leaves again when the promise is fulfilled. Not only does it arrive late, it comes after Abraham, but it leaves again when the promise is fulfilled. So the law prepares us to worship Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. The law prepares us to worship Jesus. The law was added as a temporary measure in order to reveal sin. And you can't talk about this without quoting Martin Luther. So here's a Martin Luther quote for you. 15th century uh, or 16th century reformer, uh, Martin Luther. He said, the law is a mirror to show a person what he is like. A sinner who is guilty of death. I don't think he was super fun at parties. (laughs) He was a good pastor though. He was a good theologian. A sinner who is guilty of death and worthy of everlasting punishment. What is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish? This, that we may find the way to grace. The law is an usher to lead the way to grace. Why then the law? To show you that you need a savior. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until, as a temporary measure, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then it says it was put in place through angels as an intermediary. It's put in place through angels as an intermediary. Okay? Several times in the Bible, uh, it explains how the law came to the children of Israel. That it came from Moses. But the Bible also says that Moses received it from angels. And angels received it from God. So you've got some continuity of the conversation. But it originates with God, is given to the angels, is given to Moses, and then received by the people. That's how the law came. Given to the angels, God gives it to the angels, angels give it to Moses, Moses gives it to the people. Look at verse 19 again. Now, why the law? It says it was added because of transgressions 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Look at verse 20. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. The children of Israel, in a certain sense, received the law third hand. And there's nothing wrong with that, but here's Paul's point. Here's what I think Paul's point is. There's actually one scholar who I read who said that there may be 300 different interpretations of verse 20. So I'm going to give you one. I don't know if it's going to be 301. I think it's actually squarely within the orthodoxy of the 300 different interpretations who are here. But this is what I want to show. The law of Moses was received through angels, from God, to angels, to Moses, to the people. The promise of Abraham was received directly from God himself. I think Paul is arguing for the supremacy of the promise to Abraham over and against the law that was revealed to Moses, which is the exact opposite of the way that the false teachers in Galatia were arguing. What they were saying was that the law of Moses superseded the promise that was given to Abraham. Therefore, the law of Moses was more important. Paul's going, no, it's not. He's saying, in fact, the law was received directly from God with no intermediary. It wasn't the angels. It wasn't Moses giving it to the people. It was God to Moses, or God to Abraham. Now, I wasn't going to do this, but I will because it'll be fun. Here's how important this is. If Paul's writing to help them understand that the promise to Abraham is greater than the law of Moses, which is the argument I'm making, listen to this about how important the gospel is to us. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 says, Long ago, it's not going to be on the screen. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here's what I want you to notice. There was some importance to the law that came to Moses. God gave it to the angels who gave it to Moses who gave it to the people to live it out so that they might understand their sin. It was there as a temporary measure until the promise of Abraham would come. God spoke to Abraham, gave him the promise directly to him. That promise is important. And Paul's been making an argument that that's what we base our life in faith upon. Not on law keeping, but upon our faith in the promise that was given to Abraham, the seed, Jesus, who came. Do you know what? Think about how important the law is. Think about how, oh, even more important the Abrahamic covenant is. God gave it directly to Abraham. Here's how important the gospel is to us. God sent his son. Not a prophet. Not an oracle. Not a word to an angel. His son. Born of a virgin. Lived a perfect life in our place. So that we might know what God's like. And we might know what it's like to live a life that glorifies him. Yeah, yeah, the law is very important. Oh, the promise to Abraham may be superior. But the gospel is so important that God sent his son. Not an angel and not a word, not a voice, not a prophet. His son. And he sent him to live perfectly. To die sacrificially. And to rise triumphantly in our place and for our sins. Oh, the glory of the gospel, Christ said he. 
That's how vital it is that we receive Jesus, the incarnate Christ, the second person of the triune God, born as a baby, to live and to die for you and me. That's the addition of the law. Why was the law brought into the picture? Second point, the inability of the law. The inability of the law. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. This is Paul's uh, words translated into English in a nice way. I think he says, heck no. No, not at all. By no means. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, pay attention to the phrase give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This is the inability of the law to give life. Here's the problem. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would come indeed by the law. Problem is, the law was never intended to give life. The law was never intended to be eternal. But the false teachers in Galatia believed that the law had come and that the law was not a temporary measure put in place until the time when the promise to Abraham would arrive and Jesus would fulfill the law and die in our place. We'd receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what happened. They believed that that law was there and that it would endure. They believed that the law could give life. And Paul's saying, hey, the law was never intended to give life. That was not the purpose of the law. The law is an usher that leads us to grace. The law prepares us to worship Jesus. The law was added as a temporary measure to reveal sin until Jesus came. The law cannot give life. If the law could give life, then there would be no reason to have Jesus come and live and die for us. That's what it said back in um, chapter 2, verse 21. Again, this won't be on the screen. Verse 21 in chapter 2, Paul says, I did not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying, if, the, if you could be righteous through the law, then Jesus' death is meaningless. And Jesus' death certainly is meaningless. Look at verse 21 in our text. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So that phrase, give life, do you see that? The law was never intended to give life. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And once we have this foundation laid in chapters 1 through 4 of Galatians, we are going to move into chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 5 and 6 of Galatians are electric. We need this foundation to build it upon, but oh, Galatians 5 and 6, if you're reading ahead as you should be reading ahead and looking at the text and sort of just immersing yourself in it, it is so good. The law can't give life. Paul was writing a letter to a church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's contrasting the new covenant in Christ with the old covenant, the law of Moses. He's contrasting them. He actually calls the old covenant, the law of Moses, he calls. He calls the law of Moses a ministry of condemnation. He actually calls the law of Moses the ministry of death. That's what he says, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. This is the covenant in Jesus' blood. The new covenant Hebrews calls it the covenant in Christ's blood. 
Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Do you see the contrast? Not of the letter of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the same word in our text. It says the Spirit gives life. In our text, it says if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Look, the law can't give life. Trying to obey the law and thinking it's going to lead you to life is a fool's errand. The addition of the law was to reveal our need for saving and the inability of the law to give life. That's clear. It's unable to do it. And the good news is we're not looking there anyways. We're looking to the spirit who gives life. Christ came and lived and died and rose and poured out his spirit upon his people. We're spirit people. The spirit comes to give life. The Holy Spirit of God is what enlivens us. It's not your obedience to Old Testament law. That's the addition of the law and the inability of the law to give life. But what about the freedom of faith? Verse 22, the freedom of faith. Let's look at this. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So because the law and the demands of the law are ultimately impossible to fill, uh, fulfill in our own strength, we find that we are imprisoned, it says. We are in need of saving. If somebody or something is imprisoned, it needs to be set free. If something is being contained, it needs to be set free. The Israelites were imprisoned in slavery under the pharaohs. And God came to set them free. They found freedom and deliverance in what he did. And because the purpose of the law was not to give life, but was actually purposed to point out our need for salvation and our need for a savior, we are then keenly aware of our need for freedom from the bondage that we are in. Here's where we realize the importance of the faithfulness of Jesus and how he purchased our freedom through his finished work on the cross. Our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus is what sets us free from the bondage we live in when we're trying to earn our own salvation through our own efforts. Like if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've not received him and you're hearing all of this and you're going, gosh, there's a lot of law conversation, a lot of Old Testament conversation, a lot of Bible conversation. We got Abraham, we got Moses, we got Jesus, we got this guy named Paul, we got this church in some place called Galatia that I have no idea where that is. Listen. That all might graze over your head in this moment. And that's okay. But you feel this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you live your life trying to be good enough. You kind of have this idea that there's probably a God and that I need to do something to please him. And I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, Allison and I are watching this stupid show called The Good Life. Or The Good Place. The Good Place. It's, it's a terrible premise, but it's actually hilarious. The premise is that if you do enough good things in this life, that you then, when you die, go to either the good place or the bad place. If you've done enough really good things, a few people get into the good place based on what they did in their life. Everybody else goes to the bad place. That's bondage. That is absolute bondage. Living your life, looking over your shoulder, wondering if you've done enough, like, where's the bar for you? If you're not a follower of Jesus and you think that you need to just do good and try hard, 
What's the bar of doing enough good and trying hard enough? That's totally subjective. And it's bondage. And Christians, we fall back into it once in a while, don't we? Where instead of trusting on the merits of Christ, we want to earn our own standing before God and trust in our own merit. And this gospel has come to set us free from that temptation. Our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus is what sets us free from the bondage we live in when we're trying to find our own identity apart from the new life that we receive when we come to God and we receive new life by the Holy Spirit. We look around and go, well, I need to be like this or I need to be like that. I need to fit into that group. Man, young people, you you, you realize the tension of being a high school student, a college student, university student, young and employed, and you're trying to figure out what group you fit into. And if I behave this way, maybe they'll accept me. And if I act this way, maybe they'll accept me. Here's Here's a little secret for you young people. We never grow out of that. You do become a little more comfortable in your own skin, but you won't grow out of wanting to be accepted. Wanting to be accepted is actually something fundamental to the human condition. You just have to decide who you want to be accepted by. Is your identity built on what you do or what you've accomplished, or is it built upon who you are in Christ and what he's accomplished on your behalf? We all want to be accepted. What if I told you you could be accepted fully by the God of the universe by placing your faith in the finished work of Christ? That's freedom. There's no more bondage. There's no more wondering. There's no more angling. There's no more parading. There's no more posturing. Just pure acceptance of knowing that you're there. (laughs) Fast forwarding to Galatians 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's what I would say to us today. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Live in the freedom of that you've received in the Spirit, that you've received because of the finished work of Jesus. So why then the law? Well, let me allow John Stott to have the last word this morning. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. And the good news is today he welcomes us to come to him. Would you stand as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.